John 6, beginning in verse chapter 1, after these things, uh, Jesus went away to the other side of the body of water you correctly identified, the Sea of Galilee, you should have in your Bible, perhaps in parentheses, Tiberias. Why? Well, there was a city on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, Herod Antipas, a family member of Herod the Great, was in charge of the area. He named that city after a Roman uh, Caesar named Tiberius. And so the city came to be known (coughs) and is known down to this very day as Tiberius after Tiberius Caesar. And so the body of water there is known variously as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Now the text says the Lord went to the other side. So if Tiberius was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side means he made his way eastward to the east side. If you can get this visual in your mind, <coughs> he went to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And according to verse 2, a large crowd followed him. Why? Well, they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Understandable. It was sensational what he was doing. He was healing those who were severely afflicted with all manner of diverse medical afflictions. They followed him because of the physical healings, but all along he, the great physician, was most concerned about healing them spiritually. There was a broken relationship between them and the God who made them. And the Lord wanted to fix that. Excuse me one second. There you go. Now verse 3. Then Jesus went up to the mountain or mountainside. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now if it's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was sort of a hilly mountainous area. It's the area we know today to be the Golan Heights. Some of you have been on that very a real estate, which is a very, very um, strategically important bit of real estate today because it's bordered by Syria today and all kinds of chaos is happening there. It's right on Israel's border. Russia has established its presence there. It has landing strips and jet fighters well within striking distance of Israel, and so the Golan Heights is quite a contested area, and that's where the feeding of the 5,000 probably took place. To give you a time indicator, (coughs) verse 4 tells us it was Passover, the feast of the Jews. It was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to, and many of you got this right, said to Philip... Where are we to buy bread so that we may eat? Why did he pinpoint Philip? I think it's because one of the other Gospels tells us Philip came from a place called Bethsaida, and Bethsaida was the city nearest to this locale. And so the uh, implication is that of all people, Philip would know of food resources in the area. So the Lord asked this question of Philip, where can we buy food? Now listen. Whenever in the Bible the Lord asks a question, I assure you it's not to gather information. He, he's, uh, he doesn't lack information. It's always a device. He asks a question to give an opportunity for people to answer it. And those asked the question have the option of answering correctly or incorrectly. It's kind of a test. And hence it actually says this in verse 6. 
This he was saying to test him. For he, the Lord, he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now how might Philip, and by extension the other disciples, have answered the Lord's question? How might they have passed the test? They could have said something like, Lord, the crowd is quite large. In fact, far greater than any resources you or we possess or even know of. But you are able to provide. They could have answered that way. I think they would have gotten A plus on the test, but they didn't answer that way. In fact, this is what Philip said in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's the equivalent of about eight months' wages in that day. 200 denarii, Philip said, worth of bread, even that is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. So understandably, Philip focused on Uh, his sorely limited human resources and not on the Lord. Philip and the other disciples, they did what we would do if we were there. They evaluated the situation uh, uh, just as we would have done. And they came to this conclusion. There are here many more human needs than there are available human resources. That's the conclusion they came to. In other words, the situation was hopeless. They didn't have enough money. 200 denarii is insufficient. And even if they had lots of money, there wasn't enough bread on the shelves. By the way, the bread wouldn't be like a loaf of wonder bread. It was flat, circular bread. And and even if they had the financial wherewithal to purchase it, uh, it, there wasn't enough of a supply to feed a crowd this particular uh, size. So they recognized correctly the need Uh, But they wrongly looked to their own limited resources. And all along, isn't this something? All along, almighty God, Jesus, the great provider, the all-sufficient one, the one who could speak into existence that which is not, he's right there in their midst. And they seem to be quite distracted and missed him. So like the Lord's followers, Philip and the others then, so too we, don't you think we have this proneness to miss the Lord, the great provider who stands right in our midst at all times? And so in a seemingly hopeless situation, perhaps you're in one right now from a human point of view, please don't forget that the Lord Jesus, your Savior, is right there ready to be depended on. He's willing. And what's more, he's able to supply whatever we need and whatever he wants us to be. He, he, he doesn't promise that he will give us all we want, but the promise is he will supply us with all we need in order to be who he wants us to be and in order to do what he wants us to do. See, he's our savior. Uh, praise him. But don't forget, he's also our sustainer and supplier. And so one of his disciples, verse 8, another one, Andrew happened to be Simon Peter's brother, he said to him, well, uh, there is a lad here who has, see, you got this right, young boy. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many? So so Philip missed the Lord, the all-sufficient one, right in his midst. But so too did Andrew. So what Andrew did, he tried to solve the problem in another way. He did some kind of survey of the crowd. I don't know how he did it. He went through to see who brought food to this outing. And he found out that, well, there was this young boy. He had some food, a few loaves of bread and a few 
fish. Well, hopelessness really prevailed at this point, even though the God, who is the God of all hope, once again was right there. So verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Remember I mentioned to you this is the only miracle repeated in all four Gospels? So to get a fuller picture, you can borrow uh, from the way the other Gospel writers report this account. So for instance, Matthew tells us that uh, these 5,000 men did not include women and uh, children, and so that being the case, I think you got that right, uh, the crowd uh, could be rightly estimated to be 15, 20, even 25,000 people. And then Mark's gospel tells us that they were seated, you got this right as well, in groups of either 50 or 100. And this would facilitate both the uh, counting of the number of people and also the distribution of food. So here's what happened, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, the little boys, lunch. Jesus took the loaves and having, here's what he did first. You got this right. He prayed. Having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. So in giving thanks first, he followed Jewish tradition. It was a Jewish custom. You pray in, the, in, in Jewish culture before and after the meal. In fact, the Lord might have prayed something like this. We do this today. Baruch. Atah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi, Lechem, Min HaOretz, which means, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. In Judaism, we don't bless the food, we bless the one who provided it. And the Lord, in human form, being Jewish, followed this custom. And the text says the people had all they wanted. They were entirely satisfied. They had as much as they wanted. Not only did they have a large quantity of food, the quality of the meal was probably like none other they had ever experienced nor will ever. This for sure was the best meal they ever had. This is food directly from God. For the rest of their lives, they would tell people about this special meal provided for them by God. God himself, a little boy it was, who gave what he had. It wasn't much, but he volunteered what he had. It was just a little, but a little becomes a lot when put in the Lord's hands. And so the Lord Jesus surely didn't need this little boy's lunch, and he doesn't need a portion of what he has entrusted and provided us with materially either, So why does he invite us to give? Well, for the same reason I think he accepted this little boy's offering. Can you imagine what effect this would have on the little boy's life to participate materially in the spiritual activity of Almighty God? That's why God wants us to give a portion. It doesn't have to be all. A portion of what he's entrusted to us financially and Materially, he wants us to get in the blessing of participating in his redemptive plan. He wants us to discover the joy of giving. I guarantee that boy did. So it says in verse 12, when they were filled up, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing 
will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled, you got this right, 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. In the Bible, there's a field of study called numerology. You can study the incidence of numbers in the Bible. It's legitimate, but you have to really exercise caution when you do. Some people study biblical numerology and go way, way beyond the confines of the text and read all kinds of fanciful conclusions into the numbers in the Bible. You want to be very, very careful. Uh, On the other hand, you don't want to go to the other extreme and think the numbers mentioned in the Bible are arbitrary. There's nothing arbitrary in the inspired word of God. It's always purposed for a reason. So the numbers here, why 12 baskets? Why five loaves? Why two fishes? Well, there's all kinds of explanation. 12 loaves, 12 tribes of Israel, etc., etc. I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm not, uh, I'm not a very astute student of biblical numerology. All I know is there's some significance here, but there's some practical meaning to it. 12 baskets, Full, uh, full of uh, leftovers, 12 disciples. That meant they would have enough food for tomorrow. Yeah, but wait, what, why did they need it? Why did they have to stuff the baskets with the leftovers uh, in anticipation of their hunger needs tomorrow? Why, I mean, the Lord, couldn't he just pull off another miracle like this the next day and the next and the next? The answer is yes, but that's not what he does. So be careful about miracles, would you please? Again, you can go to two extremes. You can make exceptional evidences of God's supernatural power so ordinary and oft occurring that they cease to be very special. Or you can deny the miraculous entirely. Both are extremes. The Lord is, was then and is today a miracle worker. But the miracles he performed in the Bible were never for theatrics. They never were frivolous. They always were purposeful. The miracles the Lord performed were always designed to be signs attesting to something about him. So he did not do daily typical things, miracles. He did exceptional things. A miracle is an exception to the rule. If it's as commonplace as some would persuade us that they are, then they cease to be miracles. They're just ordinary. This was an extraordinary demonstration of God's creative power. The Lord Jesus had the capacity to speak into existence, multiplied loaves and fishes, but he did not do that the next day, only on this day. Why? What was this meant to prove, to attest to? Listen here. If this Jesus could so marvelously, graciously, and miraculously provide physical bread to satisfy one's physical needs, maybe he has the capacity to provide spiritual bread that can satisfy our even deeper spiritual hunger. In fact, that's the point of the miracle. For the Lord Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, verse 35, his words, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He's not talking about physical hunger there. No. And he who believes in me 
will never thirst. Lord Jesus, how can I believe you to satisfy the longing of my soul? How can you fill me up spiritually? Why am I to trust you? And then he could say, because I'm the one who multiplied the loaves and the fishes. So that's the point of the miracle. So the people obviously recognized that this Jesus was special. He is categorically different. Therefore, it says in verse 14, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? Who are they talking about? Well, Moses, their great rabbi, wrote centuries before in the Torah, first five books of the Bible, In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses was speaking of one, a great one, far greater than him, to come one day. And to him, Moses said to the people, you must give attention. So the people are saying, I wonder if this Yeshua, this Jesus, is he the special prophet predicted by Moses? And they began to be quite exhilarated. Wait, they said, maybe he's the Messiah we're waiting for longingly. Maybe he's the one who will regularly fill our stomachs guarantee us success and victory in life and tend to all our physical needs. (gasps) Better yet, maybe he's the one who will vanquish our enemies, free us from Roman oppression and liberate us politically. And so they were quite excited about the possibility. And, And so verse 15, Jesus perceiving that they were, this is what they were intending to do, that they were intending to come and take him by force, to make him, not a prisoner, to make him king, he, Jesus, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Why? Why would he leave them? Why did he run from this? Well, I'll tell you why. He did not come to be this kind of king. He did not come primarily to meet people's physical and material needs. That's not his primary mission. He did not come primarily to free us from social injustice and political oppression. That is not why he primarily came. That's what their expectation of the Messiah was. They wanted to be saved politically. And he came to save them from their sin. But they didn't want to deal with that. To be saved from sin means you have to confess you're a sinner. And nobody want, few want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to admit that I have a sin nature, that I'm on the outs with God, and that I can't do anything about it, that I'm beholden to him and his grace and mercy to forgive my... You know, I just don't want to do that. The freeness of the forgiveness God offers is too costly for a proud person. If it's that free, if I can't earn it nor contribute to it, then I don't have any bragging rights. Therefore, that's not the kind of savior and salvation I'm looking for. And so he ran. He didn't come to be that kind of 
king. He didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from sin. He came to suffer quite horribly, as you know, on the cross for sin. But wait just a second. What if he succumbed here to the temptation of allowing them to place the crown on his head now without the cross? What if he succumbed to the temptation to come into his kingdom? Listen, listen. His popularity at this point amongst the masses was at its peak. What if he took advantage of the momentum and said, crown me? And thus avoided the cross. <gasps> what if he did that? Think about it. What if he could receive his crown now <laughs> without the obligation of crucifixion? <clears throat> he has that very opportunity. He could have the crown without the cross. No, he could not. No, he would not. He's God. The Bible tells us even the Son of Man came. No, no, no. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we praise him and thank him that he didn't avoid the cross. If he did, if he assumed his kingship, oh, he will. But if he assumed his kingship prematurely, if he assumed his kingship without the necessity of being impaled, On the cross for our uh, sin, where would you be and where would I be? Think about it. If the Lord succumbed to the temptation of becoming king without the cross, where would you be? I'll tell you where. We would be without a substitute for sin. We would be without a ransom for sin. We would be without redemption from our sin. We would be without forgiveness of our sin. We would be without a pardon of our sin. We would be without access to sinless heaven. Folks, we would be without hope. And so Jesus took the cross. Oh, one day we will crown him with many crowns after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension and upon his return, but not before. Satan was defeated once again. He was behind this. Satan knew if we had a crossless Christ, you and I would be unsaved and without hope. Don't you know that's why people like Jonathan and Chuck and others in this church and many others do what they could to go about to tell people, about the Lord Jesus. They know without him and what he obtained for us on the cross, they are without hope. You know, this is one of the reasons why ordinary people like us, I don't know, maybe use something like this in communicating the gospel, the good news to people. We say, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins. Now, this is important. Through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross, in my place. 
He's king of kings, and every knee shall bow. But first he came as suffering servant to suffer in our place for our sin so that you and I can have hope of eternity, hope of reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, and pardon, adoption, and all the rest, which would not be ours if Jesus avoided the cross. Thank God that he did not. Aren't you grateful? Lord Jesus, we are grateful. Crucified, resurrected, ascended Savior. We cannot thank you enough for offering your broken body and shed blood on a horrific cross in our place. And now we have hope. For the penalty for our sin, the one due us, has been paid in full. And we love what you said in conclusion. It is finished. Paid in full. We look forward to the time when you, Lamb of God, return. And when you're acknowledged as Lion of Judah. When you come, O God, as King of Kings. We look forward to that day. and Thank you. First, O oh God, for taking the cross in our place. Now we are free from the penalty of sin. And now we are free to serve. And now we are free to persuade others that what you did is all that a believer needs in, need to be, in order to be assured of forgiveness and pardon and the forgiveness of sins. And this we pray with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.